0: Bibles and turn to the book of Titus, please. Titus chapter 3. And if you are a guest here today, again, we welcome you. Uh, Maybe you uh, didn't bring a Bible or don't have a Bible, uh, but there's probably somebody sitting next to you who does, and maybe they'll share with you so that you can follow along. We also have some Bibles. One of our ushers could bring you uh, if you need one. Uh, But I encourage you to uh, follow along in the scriptures this morning. I'm going to direct your attention uh, to Titus chapter 3 and beginning in verse 4. And we're going to read down through verse 7. You follow along as I read. The Bible says, But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, But according to His mercy, He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which He shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that being justified by His grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Our passage this morning, if we just read over those (coughs) words, (coughs) excuse me, hate it when that happens. if we just read over those words, we may not really grab all that's said there. Pardon me. But in this statement, in these verses that we've read, it's just loaded, loaded, full of theological truth, and we could really take months and months and maybe even a lifetime and just preach on this statement here. <clears throat> There's so many words in there that if we were to just study them out exhaustively, it would take months and months. And we can't do that, that of course. But the truth that is contained here, it sweeps from eternity past all the way to eternity eternity future. And we can't do all of that in one message. But I do want to emphasize how loaded this passage is full of truth. And I want for us to look at this passage as it relates to salvation, but particularly three simple words. And those words are found in the first part of verse 5. Notice the Bible says, "...not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us." Those three words is what I want to zero in on this morning. And in those simple words, what you have is the core of our Christian faith, but what you also have is the single most important thing that anybody could ever consider, that God saves sinners. He saved us. It's all about God saving sinners. The word saved is a common word, it's a word that is distinctly Christian, of course. The word itself, saved, it means deliverance, it means rescue. It was a word that was used in a temporal sense as well. And the meaning that it carried was it described rescuing somebody from danger. It described preserving someone safe from harm. It describes delivering someone out of potential ruin and disaster. It talks about salvaging somebody in the midst of death. That's what the word saved means. To deliver, to rescue. In fact, in in the Gospel of Matthew, a number of times that word is used in a temporal sense. For example, in Matthew chapter 8, what we find is, is the disciples out on the Sea of Galilee, and a storm came up, and it was, it was, it was about to overtake them. It was, it, they thought the boat was going to sink, and they were in fear. And the Bible says in Matthew 8, and verse 25, the disciples came to Jesus and awoke Him and said, Lord, save us, we perish. Now, they weren't talking about spiritual salvation. They were talking about physical deliverance from a storm that was about to take their life. So the verb speaks of rescuing someone from imminent, grave, serious, even permanent danger or disaster. Now, in a spiritual sense which is the main usage of that word in the New Testament. It has much the same idea, only it has the idea of being saved from or rescued from sin, being rescued from sin's power, being rescued from sin's penalty, being preserved from the divine wrath of God and judgment from eternal judgment on sin. That's how the word is used in a spiritual sense in the New Testament to be delivered, to be rescued only from the penalty of sin and from the wrath of God. If you're saved today, you know and love the word saved. Amen? You understand what it means. We talk about being saved. We talk about salvation. We remember the words of the Apostle Paul, how he said when he was writing to Timothy that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, to rescue otherwise doomed and damned sinners. We know and love the word. Amen? But the word saved also has a positive connotation to it. It carries the essence of not only lifting us out of danger, but also putting us into a place of blessing. Not only delivering us from the punishment of sin, but bringing us into a place of glory. Not only taking us away from the threat of eternal judgment in the lake of fire, but also giving us the hope of heaven. Not only dismissing us from the wrath of God but bringing us into a place of divine blessing. The word carries the idea of being delivered, yes, as Paul said, out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his dear son. And so we come to know and love the word saved. It's God saving men and women from their sins and the inevitable eternal consequence of our sin. Being saved is the theme of our preaching. Amen? It's the theme of our witnessing. Why do we witness to people? We tell them of the fact that God can save their soul, can rescue them, deliver them from sin's penalty. It's the theme of songs that we sing. We could go through our hymnal and we could find salvation songs and we could read the words. It's the theme of the songs that we sing. Uh, the, the, The great reality of the Christian faith is summed up in these three words that God, He saved us. Saved us from sin, from the power of sin, the penalty of sin. And to remind us of how desperately we need saving, I want you to look back at verse 3 of Titus chapter 3, where Paul says, For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, Deceived, serving divers' lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. And then he says, but after that, the kindness and love of God, our Savior toward man, appeared. He said, you used to live this way. You were disobedient. You were foolish. You served all kinds of different lusts and pleasures. You lived and spent your time in envy and hating and hating one another and malice. That is how you lived your life. And Paul says here to remind us of how desperately we need saving. I want to remind you of what you were before you were saved. Those terms that are listed in verse 3, they can be added to the plethora of terms that we find throughout the New Testament that describe the sad and tragic fallen condition of mankind. Did you know, friend, right now, today, you sitting here, when you were born into this world, you were born in a tragic condition. You are born a sinner. Your nature is that of a sinner. Look in Romans chapter 1. Just keep your place here in Titus Please, and we'll get back to it in just a minute, because we're going we're gonna to break that passage down. But I want you to see how the Word of God describes the condition of men. Most of the time, people think that they're pretty good people. I'm a pretty good person. If I came to ask you, do you think you're a good person? More than likely, somebody in this room would say, yeah, I'm a pretty good person. That's how you think of yourself. That is not how God sees you or me. In Romans chapter 1, in fact, it's a description of the condition of mankind. Look in verse 18, Romans 1 and verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Who hold the truth in unrighteousness. it means they suppress the truth. They don't want to hear the truth. They don't want to let the truth work in them. They don't want to see it for what it is. We've made this stuff up in our mind of what we really want. And so the truth can't get in. He says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against the unrighteousness of men. And then he says in verse 19, Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So he says God has revealed himself. Even in creation, you can know that there is a God, and mankind doesn't have an excuse. And then in verse 21, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. Neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into the image, made like to corruptible man, and to birds, and four-footed beasts, and creeping things. He says they made idols that they would worship, and they denied the one true God. You get to verse 24, and he says, wherefore? And that means whenever you see the wherefore, you got to go back and find out what it's there for. And we just found out. Because man is in this condition, because of that, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. Who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forevermore. For this cause, God gave them up to vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. You know what he's talking about there? He's talking about homosexuality. In verse 27, and likewise also the men... Leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men working that which is unseemly, and receiving. Receiving in themselves that recompense of their error, which was meat. He said they received in themselves the, 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 the sowing and the reaping. You sow seeds, you're going to reap a harvest. You sow iniquity, you're, you're going you're gonna to reap the crop. Why is there disease? Why is there AIDS? Why are there other kinds of, of, of transmitted diseases that way? Or in, in relation to it, because you're just receiving the recompense of your deeds. The natural cause, natural course. Full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful. You know what? You know what? You know what is not? natural he says he says here's the condition of mankind in our sin we are without natural affection why is there listen i'll, I'll probably pick on an issue right now that maybe some of you are not going to like abortion is wrong abortion is murder abortion is sin you know what is what is more natural than a mother's love for her baby. There's nothing more natural than that. But mankind in a sinful condition uh, is without natural affection. And that's why you see these problems in our culture and in this world because of sin. It's unnatural. Yeah. Yeah. And there's judgment coming for it. He says in verse 32, who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. They encourage it in others. Mankind is wicked. Mankind in his natural state is awful. And the judgment of God is coming on sin. And so, when we get back to the idea of our text here that he saved us, listen, it is the single most important thing that anybody could ever consider. And to understand how much we need rescue, we need to understand what we are in our natural state. That we're wicked and we're not good people. In fact, the Bible says that there's none that doeth good, no, not one. Did you know that just because you consider yourself to be a good person doesn't mean that you are? You and I are not the standard of what is good. There's only one that's good, and it's God. The Apostle Paul also describes fallen men in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Turn over there. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And he says in verse 9, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind. That's homosexuality again. Nor thieves, nor covetous nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And he says, and such were some of you. He's talking to the church in Corinth, and he said, you used to be this way, but you got saved. God saved you. He made you different. You used to be that way in your natural self. He describes People as fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, covetousness, revilers, swindlers, drunkards. In Galatians chapter 5, we won't take the time to read that uh, and go over there, but he he describes the human fallen condition as engaging itself in immorality and impurity and sensuality and idolatry and sorcery and envying, and drunkenness and maliciousness. In Ephesians, Paul gives the description that mankind is deceived in his own mind. His foolish heart is darkened. His understanding is gone. He's excluded from the life of God. He's ignorant. His heart is hard. His heart is calloused. He practices every kind of of immorality and impurity with, with greediness in his soul. That's the condition of mankind. That's you and me when we come into this world. And if you go back to Titus chapter 3, and you look at verse 3 again for just a minute, I want you to remind yourself of what this text says. He reminds the reader, which would have been Titus, And all who would hear from Titus in the churches, that they used to be this way. He said, for we ourselves also were sometimes foolish. The word foolish means ignorant. It means lacking understanding. He says we were disobedient. It means rebellious. It means lawless. It means resistant to God and His truth and His commandments. That's how we live do you know what the Bible says? The command of God is that you should not bear false witness or tell lies. That's a command of God. But you know what? We continually break the laws of God. We tell lies every day. There are all kinds of other commands of God. And he says we were disobedient. It means we were rebellious against God, resistant to the truth of God and his commands. Oh, well, it's not such a big deal. Everybody's doing it. That's how we justify it. He says you were deceived. We were deceived. It means we were led astray by every imaginable evil thing. He says as well in verse 3 that we served divers' lusts and pleasures. It means we were enslaved to different kinds of lusts and different kinds of pleasures. Evil desires and evil pleasures ruled the day in our life. He says living in malice and envy. The word living there, basically it means spending your time. So he says you spent your life in malice. It simply means wickedness and envy, which means ill towards other people. And we're marked by being hateful and hating one another. It's talking about being isolated, detesting others who get in our way, who keep us from fulfilling the desires of our own heart. All of that diagnosis from all of these scriptures leads us back to Romans chapter one and verse 18, where it says, "The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness of men." And Romans 6:23 that says, "The wages are what we earn for our sin is death." Listen, that is the horrifying fate that all men need to be rescued from. So when we say he saved us, there's so much in those words. We need to be rescued from who we are and from the consequences of what we are. So we ask the question, who's going to do that? Because we can't rescue ourselves. We can't save ourselves. Who's going to rescue such vicious, evil, consummate sinners? Well, then you look in our text and you come to verse 5. Verse 4 says, But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done. We can't save ourselves. We can't rescue ourselves. But according to his mercy he saved us. Who's going to do it? Who's going to rescue you from your condition? Well the Bible tells us God our savior. In verse 6, Jesus Christ our savior. God is a saving God. Jesus Christ is a saving Lord. God is committed to rescuing unworthy sinners. That's why He's called God our Savior. Amen? He saved us! He saved us! It simply reflects the fact that salvation is totally a work of God. That's what it's saying. He saved us. The point being that we couldn't do anything about our condition We're hopeless. We're dead in trespasses and sins. We can't do anything to merit God's favor. And so He saved us. The words, He saved us. Well, we're going to break that down, this passage down, for the rest of our time this morning. We're going to see how those words emphasize some things about us and about God. And I want you to pay attention This morning with this foundation that's been laid of what we are in our natural state and what we need to be rescued from all right let's pray and then we'll begin lord i pray that you'd give us of your grace today lord that your spirit would have free course in here the word of god would work effectually in hearts and lord my desire is that christ is exalted my desire is that you are that Christ is lifted up and that you are glorified. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd use your word to accomplish that purpose. And that as you promised, if Christ be lifted up, that you would draw all men unto yourself. And so we pray that you'd do that today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. First, I want you to notice in verses 4 and 5 that the words, He saved us, It really emphasizes how unworthy we are to be saved. Look at verse 4. But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. By the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. First of all, it emphasizes how unworthy we are. Notice that in verse 4, it was after the kindness and love of God toward man appeared that he saved us. Verse 5 tells us that it's not something that is earned by our works of righteousness, but it's something that only comes because of the kindness of God. Did you notice that there? You cannot earn your salvation. You cannot work or do good things to find favor with God. None of us are good. The Bible says that all of our works are like filthy rags, the things that we would present to God as good things, religious things. See, I go to church. I'm here today, right? Pretty spiritual. God's probably pleased with me today because I'm in church. That has nothing to do with whether or not God is pleased with you. It has nothing to do with whether or not you have a relationship with God or you're rescued from your sin. People try to offer up to God all kinds of religious things and say, see God, here's how good I am and expect that somehow that earns favor with God. But the Bible says in Matthew chapter 7 that there's a day coming when all the religious people are going to say, see Lord, I did this in your name and I did that in your name and I did all of these wonderful works. That's what it's called. And then Jesus is going to say, depart from me, ye that work iniquity for I. I never knew you. Paul says here it's not by works of righteousness which we have done. It has nothing to do with ourselves or with anything that we could ever offer up to God. It's only because of the kindness and love of God toward man. And what I'm saying is, it's emphasizing how unworthy we are of being rescued. Kindness is describing God here. It was the kindness of God that caused God to bring about the, the, uh, a saving plan for man. You know what God is a kind God? God is not, God is not a God who sits in heaven, who's unapproachable, uh, who, 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 is, who is a, a dictator, who's, who's in the heavens just waiting for man to mess up so he can bring the hammer down on, on mankind. That's not who God is. The Bible says that he is kind. What do we mean by that? Well, the word literally means goodness of heart. It's describing the heart of God toward men, that he's good in his heart. It means that he has a concern in his heart toward people, people who are in misery. God is inherently good. God is inherently kind. In Luke, for example... There are many places where where you you could read in the Gospel of Luke and find the kindness of God. But there's one particular verse, Luke chapter 6 and verse 35. I think it sums it up concisely for us. And the Bible says Jesus said this in Luke chapter 6 and verse 35. But love your enemies and do good and lend, hoping for nothing again, and your reward shall be great And ye shall be the children of the highest. And here it says, here it is. For he, that's God, is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. You know, we have an idea of like, we want to be kind people, but we have a tendency to be kind to those who are kind to us. And if Josh is kind to me, then I'm going to be kind to him in return. That's how we operate as, as humankind. But the Bible says that God is even kind to the unthankful and to the evil. You know what, God? God is, has every right, every right. The moment that you come into this world and, and the moment that you, listen, you're already born a sinner, already born with the wrath of God on you. But the moment that you tell your first lie, God could consume you. He has every right to because he's righteous and holy but he's kind. You're sitting here today, maybe you're not saved. Maybe you don't know Jesus Christ. Maybe you're a religious person. You're sitting here today because of the kindness of God toward you. How many sit through service after service who are unsaved and they know they are. They know they need to be saved, but they will not yield their will to God. How kind is God to you? We're undeserving and unworthy. But God is kind. The Bible says that that attribute or character of God is the very essence of God Himself. That is His heart. He's kind, even to ungrateful and evil men. It's God's nature. To be kind, to be patient, to very undeserving sinners, to very ungrateful sinners. He says he's kind even to the unthankful and the evil. God is patient. He's forbearing. He's good. The Bible even tells us that God lets the rain fall on the just and the unjust. When he doesn't have to. Paul even tells us that his goodness is purposeful. In Romans chapter 2, in verse 4, he says, Do you despise the riches of his goodness? It's the same word as kindness. And forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. You know what God's trying to do because of his kindness? He's trying to lead unworthy sinners to a place of repentance. God is good, He's kind, He's patient, He's forbearing, in order that men might have time to repent. God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked, the Bible says. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The Bible says that He would have all men everywhere to be saved. And it reflects his heart of kindness towards sinners who are unworthy. They're even enemies of God. This component of God's being is what caused God to be moved to save us. Amen? He saved us. Why? Because of his kindness. Verse 4 also says his love after the kindness and love of God appeared." God loves, not not only is God kind, but He loves mankind. The kindness, that is His virtue, manifests itself in love toward mankind. Now, the word love here, it's an interesting word. It's not a word that is normally associated with love in the New Testament this is the word philanthropia in greek which where we get our english word philanthropy from but it means this it means pity it means compassion it means eagerness to deliver from pain or distress because of strong affection it has the idea that God has strong affection toward mankind and he's eager to deliver from pain, to rescue. Wow! What? When we're so undeserving and wretched and vile That's you sitting here. And God doesn't want you to perish. God loves you. He's compassionate towards you. And he's eager to rescue you. I don't know if that does anything for you, but man, that just humbles me. It literally means that God has compassion and pity and he's eager. Maybe nowhere Is His love and the expression of this strong, compassionate pity expressed better than in the story of the prodigal son? Do you remember that? In Luke chapter 15. Turn over there with me, please. Just stay with me. I may go a little longer today than normal. We still got a ways to go. (laughs) Luke chapter 15. And look at verse 11. And he said, A certain man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all... There arose a mighty famine in that land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's Have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. He realized what he had done. He realized who he was, how wretched he was. And he humbled himself, and he went back to his father. And he arose... "...and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him, and had compassion, and ran, and fell on his neck, and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in thy sight, and am no more worthy to be called thy son." But the father said to his servants, bring forth the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. What a great illustration of God towards us. In this parable here, we see the heart of God We see that in in the verse 20 says that the father, when when the son was still a long way off, he saw his son and he felt compassion and he ran and embraced him and he kissed him over and over again. Listen, that's the heart of God towards sinners. He's not a reluctant God to receive sinners. He's not distant. He's not stoic. He's not you have failed. You have sinned. That's not who God is. The Bible says that this father ran and he throws his arms around his son and he said, my son was dead, but he's alive again. Bring the best robe, put the ring on his finger, kill the fatted calf, be merry because my son is here. God throws his arms around the sinner as it were and embraces him. When the sinner humbles himself and says, God, I've sinned against you. I'm not worthy. But we see the heart of God and compassion towards sinful people. The kindness and love of God. Amen. We also note in our text that the kindness and love of God appeared toward men. It appeared toward men. When did that appear? Well, it's a reference to the incarnation. It's a reference to the birth of Jesus Christ. It isn't that the kindness and love of God had never appeared before men. God's kindness and love could be seen in a myriad of ways throughout the Word of God, but the full, visible, personal manifestation of the grace of God and the kindness of God and the love of God came when Jesus Christ came into this world. And what did He come into this world for? To save sinners. He was compassion. Jesus Christ was pity. Jesus Christ was love. Jesus Christ was kindness. Jesus Christ was goodness in human form. He was the eternal God made visible and all of the divine Father's attributes that love sinners were made visible in Jesus Christ. We couldn't rescue ourselves. It was the kindness and the love of God that appeared in Christ and He died to save us. Wow. Notice verse 5. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. So here we see the kindness of God, we see the love of God, and we see the mercy of God. His kindness caused him to feel strong affection. His strong affection and compassion and pity caused him to be merciful. And so we look at verse 5, and we said that he saved us, not on the basis of our deeds, which we have done, trying to do some righteous thing, but according to his mercy. Do you know what mercy is? Mercy is not getting what we really deserve. That's what mercy is. And we really deserve death. We really deserve judgment from God. We deserve wrath. But instead, God gives us salvation. Why? Because he's kind and compassionate and pitiful towards miserable sinners. He saved us. Those words emphasize how unworthy we are and who God is. Pretty powerful, isn't it? I want you to look, secondly, at the words, he saved us, emphasizes what happens to us. So it emphasizes how unworthy we are, but it also emphasizes what happens to us. It says, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. He says there's washing of regeneration. The word regeneration, it means to be born again. It means to receive new life. And so when we see in the words that he saved us, it describes or emphasizes what happens to us. The washing of regeneration. It means to be born again. It means to receive new life. Only God can give life. That's what Jesus called being born from above in John chapter 3. He was talking to Nicodemus, and he said to Nicodemus, who was a religious ruler, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And he said to Nicodemus, you've got to be born from above. You've got to be born again. And Nicodemus is like, how can I enter a second time into my mother's womb and be born? And Jesus says, I'm not talking about physical birth. I'm talking about a spiritual birth, a new birth, a new life that is given to you by God himself. A new creation. Only God can do that. Here is the sinner who is dead in trespasses and sins. He's hopeless. He's lost He can't pick himself up. He can't rescue himself from divine wrath. And God comes along from the outside and regenerates him and gives him a brand new life. The washing in Titus 3.5 has nothing to do with baptism, by the way. (laughs) Baptism will never save you. People say, well, I'm a Christian. How, How did you become a Christian? Well, I was in church. I grew up a Christian and I was baptized. A lot of people say that. Think that water washes away your sin. It's not talking about baptism. Paul uses that same word in Ephesians 5 and verse 26, where the washing is accomplished by the word. He says that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. Throughout the Bible, water for washing is likened unto the word of God. In John chapter 15 and verse 3, Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Psalm 119 and verse 9, Therefore, uh, uh, excuse me, uh, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word. In other words, What Paul is talking about here is describing the two agents of our new birth. Regeneration, the word of God and the spirit of God. They're both involved in the new birth. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. In John 3 and verse 5, Jesus said, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 23, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. The washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. This book, which is being preached to you today, is a mirror. It's a mirror for the soul. It shows us what manner of men we are. In our own thinking, we think we're good people. But when we dig into the perfect law of liberty, all of a sudden we see and we find that my own thinking is not accurate. I'm not a good person. The Bible describes me completely different. And it shows me what I really am, and it causes me to understand that I need to be rescued, saved. And only God can do that. The renewing of the Holy Ghost, the effect of regeneration, having new life, being born again, is a change of person. It's a change of life. It's affected by the Word of God and the Spirit of God. This renewal is a radical renewal. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. What it means is that when you get saved, when you are rescued from your sin, you have brand new life. You're regenerated, and you're a brand new person, which leads to brand new things. And here's the rub for people. Because people say, I'm a Christian, I'm saved, I know the Lord, I'm a good person, I serve God, I do all these things, and they list all the things that they think are righteous. But you know what doesn't change? You know what doesn't happen? They're not a brand new person. They're still the same old person on the inside. They still do all the same old things that they did. Their life is still a wreck. But I'm saved, I'm a Christian, no you're not. And I don't say that to be mean. I simply say that's what the Word of God teaches. Because if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation, and old things are passed away. The old life is gone, and all things are become new. And a person who's truly saved, many of you today right here could testify, I used to be this way. I was that way. This is what my life was. But I'm somebody totally new. I can testify of that. And many in this room can. We're completely different people because of regeneration. We've been washed. We've been cleaned. We've been given brand new life. All things become new, he says. What does that mean? It means we're a new man. And life is totally different. It's not like it used to be in any way, shape, or form. We've got a new identity. We have new longings, new desires in our soul. We have new aspirations. We have new passions. We have new affections that are toward God. That is the work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration. Would you notice the beginning of verse 6 where he says of the Spirit that we're renewed by the Holy Ghost whom God hath... What does it say in verse 6? Shed on us abundantly. You know what that means? It means that God pours out His Spirit into your life. We couldn't do anything to get the Holy Spirit of God. I don't know if you remember this, but in the book of Acts, there was a man named Simon who thought he could buy the Holy Spirit. He wanted it for himself. And Peter said, may your money perish with you. You're not a child of God. There's nothing that you can do to gain or earn the Holy Spirit of God. That's something that God pours out. And it tells us in verse 6 that he pours out his Spirit abundantly. It means richly. That's what happens when he saves us. We're a brand new creature. Everything is different. We have new life and we have the Holy Spirit of God. Does that describe you today? I'll conclude with this. I've gone long today and I'm losing some of you, I can tell. But verse 6 also says that all of that is through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Wow. The person and work of Jesus Christ made all of that possible. That's why Peter, when he was preaching on the day of Pentecost, he said, God, according to his predetermined plan, sent Jesus Christ into this world and Jesus Christ was crucified. Jesus Christ came to pay the price for sin, to conquer death. And he, Jesus, satisfied the justice of God, the price that you and I should pay. It came through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He saved us. Amen? Amen. Just briefly, in verse 7, verse 7 says that being justified by His grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Here's the part. Remember in the beginning when I said that salvation, being saved, also has a positive connotation to it? it's not just being rescued from but it's also being brought into here's the part that i'm talking about where we're being brought into something along with being rescued he says we're justified that means to be declared righteous and it's by his grace that is the unmerited favor of god we didn't earn it and then he says we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And I wish we had the time to break this down. But basically, what it's saying is because of God's grace, we're justified, we're declared righteous. And the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us, it's put to our account, we're clothed upon with the righteousness. And so, God does not see our sin, He sees the righteousness of His Son. And it's all because of God's grace. Grace takes the righteousness of God. It puts it on our account, declaring us righteous and just in God's eyes because Christ has made a satisfactory payment for our sin. He paid the price. Therefore, our sins are removed. Justice is fully satisfied because of the kindness, the love, the mercy, and the grace of God. Grace is giving us what we don't deserve. We don't deserve salvation. We don't deserve to be forgiven. We don't deserve to have our sins removed. We don't deserve the imputed righteousness of God. We don't deserve to be just before God. We don't deserve to come into his presence. We don't deserve heaven. But God's grace gives it to us because God's justice is satisfied in Christ. Amen. All of this results in the most immense and amazing benefit to you and me. And that's this. In Christ, we're made heirs. Joint heirs with Christ of all that God possesses. And we're given eternal life when we deserve death. So the question is this morning. Are you saved? Are you truly saved? Rescued? Not because of some religion or something that you claim, but has your life changed? Are you different? Have you seen the wretchedness of your own soul and in repentance toward God? said, God, I'm sorry for what I am and who I am. And I need to be rescued. And then put your faith in Jesus Christ, who paid the price for your sin. When did that happen for you? He saved us. Who gets the glory for that? Only He does. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, that You'd use the truth of Your Word this morning to draw men to Jesus Christ and there's some here today who've never been born again. They don't have new life. Their life is still the same as it was. They might claim to be good people. They might claim some sort of belief in Jesus or claim some sort of Christianity. But the words we say and what we claim, those those don't mean anything. What we need is to be rescued from our sinful condition. And Lord, I pray that you'd use your word as a mirror of the soul to show us what manner of men we are. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.